Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, welcome back. It's Ledge. I have another awesome episode today. We called in Arlen Ward. He is the founder and CEO of System Insight Engineering with some really, really interesting computational modeling, simulation, complex systems. Like this stuff is thrilling to me, and I cannot even possibly give this uh, the proper introduction. So Arlen, I'm going to ask you to say hello and tell us what your company does. Hey, thanks, Ledge. And, and thanks for having, having me on. It's, uh, um, it's always fun to talk about what we do and, and kind of the impact we're having on, on uh, the medical device industry. So uh, what we do is uh, we apply uh, computational modeling and simulation, so computer models, to the medical device world, which isn't you know, terribly unique in and of itself, but the part that we do is, is, is look at the interaction between those devices and the patient. So when you start bringing the biology into that and, 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 and how those devices interact with patients, um, our primary focus at this point is, is on devices that use energy. So if you um, have a surgical device that uses lasers or, or some sort of um, electrical energy or microwave or, or, or therapeutic ultrasound, those sorts of things. We help those companies really figure out kind of where those settings are and, 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 and a lot of the device design type questions, you know, and how that's going to interact with their patient population earlier in the process than, than has been done in the past, where we can answer some of those questions before we start getting into building prototypes and, and testing in a lab and doing those iterations over and over again, which is uh, kind of the traditional way of uh, of developing those devices. So. so these are actual hardware devices, and you have to test them and model the testing of them, and you can try to drive down then the cost and the the timeline. I would imagine of so how will this behave if we built it under these uh, particular specifications? Then, right? Yeah. So if you're looking at uh, at something that's you know maybe it's laser based, and you've got you know questions about what what wavelength, what power level, what duration, you know, what, what is the device in its working end and, and how it interacts with the patient? How, you know, what does that need to look like in order to get the effect that you need? Um, you know, if, if you're looking to, you know, cut through tissue or stop bleeding or, or seal blood vessels or, you know, ablate tumors, um, you know, that sort of thing where um, you can go in, uh, you know, tumor ablation is fascinating because it's, it's one of those things where, um, with very little intervention, you can get in there and you can, you know, essentially cook tumors in place. So 
um, you know, the, the, for patients where they're they're not doing so well in terms of um, being able to go um, have full surgeries and have things cut out, you can you can still treat that without having to uh, you, you know just kind of send them home with, with palliative care. So yeah, right, right. There's there's uh, there's a ton of different opportunities there, and you know, so a lot of what we do is, is model how this energy interacts with tissue. The other side of that is when you have sensor sense systems and things like that, you want to make sure that you're not causing those types of effects when you have those in medical devices. So um, if you're sending electrical pulses in order to do some sort of sensing, you want to make sure that you're not, you know, you're not damaging the tissue at the same time. So, so the flip side of, of, of those surgical effects, um, we also look at to make sure that you're not causing them for the, the cases where that might be. So you have all this data that you can actually predict how tissue in the computer will react against lasers in the computer. And it turns out to be actually that way in, in real life, you know, you can, like, it just kind of blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> so, it, it is, it is, uh, yeah. it is one of the most, you know, if, if you could dream up one of the more difficult things to do in computer modeling, it would be biological tissue, right? Because, uh, if you're dealing with things like in aerospace or, 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 or cars where, you know, something is steel or even a specific alloy of steel, you know, it's fairly consistent. It is always that sort of thing. But patients and biological tissue, uh, you know, they're all different and, and it's different even in, in the same patient. If you have a um, well hydrated versus dehydrated patient, you may have significantly different electrical conductivity or something like that in the tissues that you're working in. So you have a wide range of how these things work together um, and interact with each other, and your device has to work across all of those. So that's why, um, you know, traditionally that's been building prototypes and testing them and refining that over many iterations. As you get to the point where it works well, you start to expand the scope of what kind of patients this works with, and they end up, you know, having to 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 rebuild this over and over again, and it costs, like you said, time and money to to do that. We all know, you know, the cost of healthcare goes up. You know, the entire industry is under a lot of pressure to to find ways to develop better devices um, at at a lower cost. Even you know, governmental agencies, the the FDA, the the regulatory side of things, they recognize this need as well, and and so all of us are kind of working. Uh, in tandem, trying to uh, to bring these things to uh, fruition, where we can do a lot more of this virtually up front, where design changes are cheap, rather than later after you've built prototypes and and maybe built some tooling and things like that. You want to f- find those those optimized solutions earlier. So, and I, I know a little bit about FDA device approval, just a very little bit. So, I, how far can a this modeling and, and sort of simulation get you along? that path if you're a company developing a medical device when does the rubber hit the road and you need to get approval on a physical thing you know i often get the question of you know are we replacing physical testing and it's really not that we're replacing it we're working alongside the physical uh, testing you know maybe answering some questions up front that might have been more design guesses than they would have been uh, you know design decisions um, and getting to the point where you're working alongside the, the, the physical tests and, and, and the gathering of data there, one for the validation of the model, but also because they inform each other along the way. So, so the computer modeling can tell you what's going on in your physical tests, and the physical tests will tell you if you're missing something on the computer modeling side, 
Um, and the two of them together, you know, are really um, the accelerant that helps make these devices, you know, come to market faster. And when you get to the end, you've got the regulatory body that wants the evidence that you have a safe and effective device. And the, the, the computational modeling side of that is, is a component of the, that data set that says this is, this is also how we know that this is a safe and effective device. And there's guidance documents and standards for not only the validation of those, those computer models, but also how you present that information to the regulatory bodies so they know that um, you have credible models and you've been working alongside the, the physical tests the whole way. So you can take computer modeling from the very first early ideas and take it all the way through through the regulatory approval process and, and the, the commercialization and launch of your medical device. And in even beyond that, it has utility in that you can create visualizations for your, your, your customers. So if you're working with a surgeon who wants to know how this new device works, you can uh, use animations from, from the simulation side of the world to say, you know, here's things that you can't physically see, but you know, here they are mapped out in, in this animation of, you know, here's where the energy goes, here's, um, you know, here's how the current flows through, through different parts of the body, that sort of thing. Um, to help them to intuitively understand how your device works in, in a short period of time. So it even becomes part of the, the sales process after you've launched the device. I uh, get it. So it's a really, it's a broad, like it's almost like a capital investment in digital form for like the company is getting a lot of value out of that full life cycle process all the way to, to markets and in commercialization. And the customer has you know, they gain value in it all the way along. And like you said, uh, in the, the life cycle of the device, you also have the life cycle of, of, of the simulation. So the more, you, the more you use it, the more refined that model gets, the more detailed it gets along the way. Um, early on, it's a, it's, it's a more basic model to answer, you know, bigger questions, you know, more gross motor skill kind of, you know, things, right? You're not looking at the fine details. You know, questions might be, do we use lasers or do we use microwaves? You know, is you know, those kinds of questions. As you get further and further down the list, it becomes, you know, other questions that are, that are more finely detailed around, around the design of your device. So I often liken it to, it's like a compound interest, right? You, you can invest in it early and gain the benefits along the way. Or if you wait until the very end, you have to put a whole lot more into that investment to get to the same point. Um, and you've missed out on on all of those gains that you would have had in the earlier part of the process. Yeah, so, right, right. So you can see from the beginning, there's there's a, a value in, in doing those types of simulations. Basic models answer basic questions. When design questions are, you know, should we do A or B? And at least you have something where you can compare them and make a decision off of rather than just picking one and going with it. Um, and then much later when it becomes you know, what is, what is the tolerance on these parts? We can also run those types of, of, of simulations and say, you know, this is the, the, the design space you still have left to work with um, in order to uh, create a, a part that, you know, maybe you can open up that tolerance and it becomes much cheaper to produce, um, saving you money on, on the development of that device. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the same types of discussions we would have along technical debt in, in software or and technical debt in hardware has a, a vastly negative compounding, you know, sort of thing. Like, don't wait till the end. Right. It's it's vastly, vastly more expensive and, until at least that we can 
you know, 3D print, I guess, everything by, you know, straight from the, the bottles, but we're not, we're not there yet. And you, you were career engineer, if I read correctly, that then became a founder. So you, you left industry to start a company. I wonder what that's like, because a lot of people want to do that. How did you make that leap? That that's a huge leap. Yeah. So um, I, I spent 16 years in the medical device industry, going through a number of acquisitions along the way. The as, as I you know tell people, the name of the company changed and my business card changed, but my job remained essentially the same. Around spending most of my time doing this type of, of simulation work. Um, the other part of my time in that in that part of the business was to do uh, the due diligence side of potential acquisitions for the for these device companies. And what I saw over and over again was there's a lot of really good ideas that were happening in start in, in the startup side of things where maybe a surgeon had an idea they wanted to bring it to market or or other people that uh, you know maybe had a loved one that had a particular disease state that needed to be addressed. Uh, you know, the, they had these really great ideas and, and, and valuable ways of, you know, addressing it, but they didn't have enough money to get from the idea all the way through that regulatory approval or get it far enough along that it became acquired by one of the larger, larger players. And so a lot of these really great ideas were just dying on the vine. And we're seeing that at the same time that we were seeing a rise and, and cloud computing resources. So it no longer became necessary for, you know, individual companies to have their own supercomputers to run these. You know, you can, you can rent the time from Amazon or from Google rather than, um, you know, maintain your own cluster of, uh, uh, of computers. Then the third thing was that we, you know, we're working with the FDA and seeing that the, the regulatory approval side of, of simulations was being developed and was going to be a huge impact on the ability to use this kind of information uh, throughout the development process. And that's when we started uh, System Insight, what, and which with the goal of being able to bring that expertise to those smaller companies who don't need it all the time. They only really need it in the development of, of their device in order to answer questions. You know, we can leverage that cloud computing and we can also make it in the same format that, that they want for for the regulatory body. So you have a lot of value there that you can bring to these very small companies that really need it in order to push their product to the next level, whether that's, you know, their, either their next round of funding to keep going or whether that's to get it all the way to the, that, that regulatory approval process. And then of course, from there, you know, into sales and things, things like that. It, it was, it was a, a process mostly that started from a standpoint of, you know, we had this, this technical expertise that we saw the value of bringing it to more players. And when we started System Insight, really it was myself and one business partner and both of us had that technical expertise and neither of us had a business background and had zero appreciation for all the other things that go into, into, into running a business, you know? So, um, you know, things that uh, are, are fairly obvious now, you know, like the day we walked out the door and started this company, all of a sudden these other questions hit us around, you know, well, gosh, how do you price these things? How do you market these things? How, you know, we just kind of expected that there were going to be people out there lined up to to work with us and and to to begin that outreach process of how do we how do we market what we do? How do we explain concisely that you know how we can help people? I mean, we knew we had uh, something great and beneficial, but if you can't explain it, you know, it, you know, you lose people pretty quickly. 
And it turns out that most people don't care how we do the simulations. They just more care about you know, what the results of the simulations are in terms of, of being able to help their company in particular. And so that was, that was probably our first big shift was, you know, oh, there's a whole business side of this that we also have to learn on top of, uh, uh, on top of the technical expertise. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask, you know, that there are a lot of folks that have that idea to leave, you know, the corporate sort of world and start something of value. And you can see that, that path. What do you wish you had done first? You know, if you could go back now and sort of advise, you know, cause that's why, that's why we're here. Like what, what things would you do on the side or while you're still on the corporate paycheck in order to, you know, be more prepared for that? I would have recruited somebody to help out on the business side. Someone that understood what it takes, even for a small business to, you know, to maybe not be an expert in, but at least, you know, have awareness around the marketing and sales side of things around uh, insurance, around, you know, all of those different pieces that, that play a role in, in that, um, you know, some of them are specific to an engineering consulting company, um, but I, I think that probably applies across the board to someone that that has more of a technical background. You know, maybe you know has has an idea, you know, and understands the engineering of that idea. But to have an appreciation for that whole other side of uh, of what it takes to run a business um, is is a big piece. You know, the the other big mistake we made uh, early on was. We stepped out the door and, and you know, I guess more from a, a, a position of, of fear that we weren't going to be able to, you know, pay, pay the house payment anymore. You know, really, the, we, we started from a position of, you know, we can use these simulation tools for anything. And we were trying to market it to anything, which included, you know, off-road, you know, vehicle lighting or, uh, you know, storm drains that collected, uh, uh, you know, sediment and things like that. It's like, yeah, we can model those things. Um, but it turns out that the time it takes us to get up to speed and understand the problem, uh, we're less valuable to those, those people than if we stay focused in the area that we knew, which was medical devices and specifically those that involved energy. And we were concerned that that space really didn't have enough business to keep us busy. But, you know, it was, it was a much bigger market than we anticipated to start with. And then as we went along and understood the role of sensors and other areas that we can be helpful that are essentially the same type of work, but with different questions, you know, we want to prevent effects rather than create specific effects. Those sorts of things uh, really opened up our, our, our market as well. So, um, so staying, staying very focused on what we, what we're good at allowed us to know exactly who to talk to from a marketing standpoint and, it allowed us to, um, you know, really maximize our value because it's an area that we understand intimately and, and can and, and help those companies in that in that very specific area. Yeah, that and that's the huge message: niche down to the point that you think the market might be too small, because then the people will come knocking for the specific thing that you do. And uh, I think that's that's a huge lesson for anybody. So. Be that diligent about niching down to just an uncomfortable level of explanation. That and it's not about the features. You you said it before. It's about the value. Uh, why does the customer want to do this? And what is the what does it look like from them? It's so easy to sell yourself your own you know magical uh, story and then you know sort of not be able to explain it to the people with the money. For sure. Yeah. 
And as, as we went along, uh, there, were, there became a, you know, the next big learning aha point for us was around, was around the pricing side of things. You know, how do you price anything, right? Like, like you, you start from, you know, I, I think like most people in the, that work in, in consulting, you know, we started from a point of how much money do we want to make and back calculate out, you know, an hourly rate and charge that and, and go from there, right? But if you spend any time looking into different pricing methodologies, before too long, you find value-based pricing and everybody wants, you know, the, you know that's a much better way to, to price what you do. And it, it makes perfect sense, right? You know, charge based on the value that you're providing rather than, ba- you know, based on some arbitrary hourly rate or, or something like that. And, um, and the value, and the, from my standpoint, what that allowed us to do was um, to give us enough breathing room to, to, to really expand and grow what, what, what we're doing. You know, rather than just scraping by and, uh, you know, and, and doing enough work for, for enough hours in order to make the amount of money that we wanted to make, trying to shift to a, a value-based pricing um, idea allowed us to really open up, you know, enough revenue that we can start to look at where do we reinvest this in the company in order to have better throughput for our clients, have better results for our clients, grow into adjacent areas and things like that. Um, and in that process, we found that, you know, one, the value of what we do is really astronomical compared to what it was that we thought the value was, you know, because if you take, let's just say, you know, average medical device, average, average surgical device, it takes maybe two years and $2 million to develop this device, right? Then if you can bring that device to market earlier, that means you get to spend more time selling that device rather than developing the device. And uh, much like the cost of delay, you know, it's it's kind of the inverse of that, right? Where, you know, the ramp up from launch is the same and the obsolescence is the same. So any additional time that you can sell this device, you're selling it pretty much at your peak sales, which is that plateau in the middle where you've got, uh, you know, you, you've got the ramp up is going to take whatever it takes, whether you start in in July or you start in September, it's going to ramp up at the at, the, at that same rate, um, you know. But if you start in July, you then have you know a few extra months in there where you're selling this device at at peak sales before it starts to taper off at the end. Um, and we started to look at what those numbers kind of looked like. Um, and for some of these devices, you know, if you can save a month off of the development time, especially for the mid-sized to larger de- medical device companies that have the sales force to support it. You know that the, the difference was like fifteen million dollars a month. You know, and so to be able to go in and say, if we can save you a month off of your development time, you can launch a month earlier. You have another fifteen million dollars in revenue. You know, that's that's a huge number, a huge advantage to those companies that that want to use that. And nobody really doubts that we couldn't save that we could save them that uh, that, that month. You know, in reality, it's more like. 25 to 50%. So we can save you between six and 12 months off of the development if we're involved in the whole thing from beginning to end. You know, just because of the faster turnaround, the faster um, convergence on, a, on, on a, a viable idea, you know, faster way through testing, you know, there, there's just along that, those, all those steps, there's, there's savings in time that really amount to, you know, something around six to 12 months worth of, of additional time that you would spend in the market. And those so those numbers are huge numbers, right? But what we found was 
we weren't talking to the right people about our uh, the value of what we're, we were bringing in because we were talking to you know the technical staff that had a technical problem. Then they were looking to um, you know <laughs> they were looking to solve that technical problem, and they have a development budget. And if it's it, you know as long as that solution fits inside that development budget, you know they'll work with you. But if you were to say you know even just let's say save one month off of this this thing and you say we'll make you an extra 15 million dollars for the low low price of you know i don't know 500,000 right if you're talking to the technical staff they're like that's more than my entire budget i i can't you know th- there's no way we're ever going to work with you right so so we really had to bifurcate our message into into two different people in the organization one the technical staff that that had the immediate need and those types of problems that we could work with there and the other was start talking to you know, those in the organization that were responsible for the value overall, right? The ones who that bottom line of that extra $15 million was their job more than it was, you know, to get something launched out the door. And that that became a a, a game changer for us in terms of, of the types of conversations that we had. Because then we're talking to, you know, the the those that are worried about value creation who understand the straight line between, you know, when we start selling this device versus, you know, and how much we expect to make off of it in, in the process and, and what those, those additional months really meant to them. Um, you know, we haven't got to the point where we're charging 10% of that $15 million yet per project. But, uh, you know, but if, if you do get to the point where, you know, you're talking to the right people, that's, that's, a, uh, um, that's an investment that, that companies would be willing to make, right? Because they, they they see you know uh, the 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 advantage to doing that you know if you if you can invest 1.5 and you get 15 out the other end of it you know in 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 a year's time you know that's that that's a worthwhile investment for a lot of folks sure and there's a lot of companies that are running it's not just speed to revenue you have also just reduced burn rate you know, so it cuts both ways because you would have had to have been alive with no revenue burning money like revenue, like the, you, you have just addressed both sides. I will make you money faster and I will cut your burn rate. That's a pretty good proposition. Again, you're right to the right people. You need to go up in the organization. Somebody who cares about burn rate does probably not work in engineering <laughs> or, or product. You know, they just, they get their budget and they, they spend it. And you're, you're talking about an order of leverage that um, probably exists, I would imagine, you know, pretty high up there, if not if not straight up to the C-suite. Yeah, and and we had to develop a way to make that transition over time because um, most of our first contacts within a company were at that technical level, uh, the engineers that are working on specific devices and and have specific problems. Over time, we you know we we've developed that you know as you solve that problem, you know you make sure that you're giving a presentation that includes the next level of, you know, in the next level of management and probably the one beyond that, making sure that everybody there understands what you're doing. And on top of that, make sure that you're giving the people that you're working with the tools and uh, the resources that they need in order to effectively communicate what it is that we did for their company um, in an easy manner, right? So we talked about doing some some animations um, based off of our simulations for customers. It works the same way for for you know senior management that you want something that you can show them and say this is how we spent the money and this is what we got for it and 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 
you know, as, as I tell the people on our, on our team, you know, the better we can make our clients look, the faster they're going to come back around to work with us again. Because, uh, you know, and we give them those tools to do that, right? Yeah, give people the tools to be able to sell up to their boss. Because no matter yep. who you're pitching, they need to go get it approved by somebody else. And you are counting on them to be your advocate, your salesperson internally. And they'll probably never let you touch that boss relationship because it's their hide. So how do you give them exactly the right tools? You can write education for that. You can provide them with resources, give them really good. That's what we call sales enablement materials. It's just like, show this to your boss. I want to make you look like a rock star. That goes a long way. Yeah. I mean, providing, you know, plug and play PowerPoint slides is, is one of the biggest things that we can do, right? If we can summarize in two slides what it is that we've spent the last six months doing um, and it's got some you know you know good graphics to it and is has a clear message of how it provided the value you know they can take those two slides and most of the time they leave them in our own formatting with our name all over it right and they just plug it right into their status reports and say you know and they and they go into their their meetings and say here's where we are on project x um, you know and 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 here's how we've spent that money and Here's, here's what we got for it. And it's, uh, um, it's been very effective for us in, in working our way up to having those conversations with the right people about the value of what it is that we do. So really enabling your customers, like your direct contact people to kind of spider your message and your value throughout the organization. You, you know that you can't touch them all, but you can kind of enable them to uh, make sure everybody knows kind of who's responsible for the awesomeness. Well, and, and we know that it works because we start getting phone calls from other divisions within these large medical device companies, you know, that, that you know, are on an entirely different continent from the ones that we worked with. And they're like, hey, we saw what you did for these guys. Is that something that would work for our project, right? And, uh, you know, so it, it, it gets disseminated pretty, pretty widely in, in their organizations. Um, and, 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 and then they we're fielding those phone calls and able to talk to them about, about their new projects rather than having to chase it down and say, hey, can we, can we set up a meeting with your boss? And you right. know, does he want to listen to our sales pitch for, for you know, 30 minutes? Guess so. what? The boss doesn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll end the story for everybody there. So I want to know, did you sort of study this type of technique, you know, use your engineering mind and research and stuff, or did you kind of discover this organically? Cause this actually has a name. So I'm, I'm interested to see, like, did you go learn this and train yourself or did you just figure this out? No, we, um, you know, being since we kind of work as, as experts ourselves in certain areas, I'm a big believer in bringing in people that know what they're doing. So yeah, we, we worked with uh, marketing consultants as well. And 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 work through that whole process you know talk through the different personas you know as we talked about the value we started talking about the different personas and you know as many of the different aspects that i've since learned are are you know pretty prevalent in 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 the marketing world but um no we didn't we didn't come up with it um but yeah we're, yeah right we're, we're leveraging it to the best of our ability <laughs> no that's good I, I i i love that answer because like most people try to do it themselves and you know it's just really cumbersome you don't learn this by reading a bunch of blogs in your spare time you know you do you do need expertise and for anybody that wants to look it up and at least do the initial work on that that's called land and expand there's a there's a name for that, you know, sort of strategy of get, get yourself, you know, kind of planted in there and then, uh, 
and then kind of grow the tendrils out into the organization. And it's really important when you have large enterprise clients because invariably somebody important to your uh, ability or account to do business there is going to leave and you need multiple touch points because as soon as that person leaves, you need to make sure you have other uh, people who care about you and can sponsor and, and back you up. So a uh, big mistake people make is only having one point of contact at an enterprise customer and then they quit and then you're out and it's a major hit to your revenue. Well, and that was one of the big things, um, you know, one of those, those things that we learned early on um, that came out of a conversation I had at a dinner party, actually, which was, um, you know, I was introduced to someone that had their own law firm and and it was explained to them what we do. And he's like, that's very interesting. Um, and his question to me, and this was very early, probably within eight months of when we started the company. And he goes, well, that's very interesting. Um, how do you get clients? And, you know, I was like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I, you know, that's a really good question. I should have a good answer for that. And the, and, and the, the reality was at that point, we were still relying very heavily on that, that network of people that had been built up over those 16 years in the industry. Um, but, you know, in that one conversation, I realized the longer I wasn't in it, the less relevant that network was. So one, I needed to stay plugged into that network and expand it the best I could. But two, I needed a sales strategy and a marketing strategy that wasn't reliant upon people that knew me personally. Um, and, and how to, how to kind of expand that. And that was, um, that was part of that, that very, I great. wish everybody in this situation who is starting a professional services or consulting firm lists to that. That is the number one thing that we run into when we help them is people hit the wall because I can no longer get referrals from my network or from my partners. So like you have maximized that channel. It's a great launch channel. That's in fact how everybody gets started. They know somebody who hires them, but you will run that out and you will, your growth will absolutely stall if you don't take some of that early money and develop a real marketing and sales strategy. And it happens so often that we get the calls like, yeah, we have no more referrals and our entire thing just dried up because we already took all our friends money you know? <laughs> and, and we did a good job and they'll give a referral like, but they don't have anybody else either. You know, we ran out the, the thing. So yeah, if I could advise anything, it would be spend some of that money from that early effort. Don't just pay yourself and think you're, you're riding high and everything's good. You gotta build a funnel out of out of that. And if you don't know how, uh, Arlen is wise to say, you know, go hire a, a consultants are not always bad things. You know, <laughs> we, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and and I mean, we we're in a position of of going to people and saying we're experts in this and we can help you. You know, we certainly need to believe that well enough to put our money in that same spot, right? Which is, you know, find an expert in the things that we need and. Um, and then and then develop it from there. Um, and and it, it's been, you know, very good for us in terms of of of, of getting it uh, shifted from that that individual network, which that network still exists and 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 still helps you know feed projects into into the company. And it's certainly something that you have to actively work in to maintain. You know, it's it's kind of like a garden, right? You know, you're not you know if if you if you ignore it, eventually it's just you know it's not terribly productive. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there there is that part of it, but then there's also you know the more avenues we have of of getting that message out and getting people to bring their their challenges to us, uh, the better because we can't always predict when someone needs our help, 
right? Like a lot of people I talk to, uh, they're like, oh, that's really interesting. I wish I'd known that six months ago. Or, you know, or, you know, last time we did a project, I absolutely, you know, would have used you to do that. You know, that, that doesn't bother me because I know that the next time they're in that situation, they're going to remember that there's somebody out there that can help them through that. Because, and hopefully they remember who it is. And right. And, that, and, and the thing who is, who sent that message? Yeah. Right. Be visible enough over and over again that you're reminding them so that when they are in that situation six months from now, you're in their LinkedIn feed or you're in their Twitter feed or, or whatever your outreach you know, your, your, um, your newsletter ends up in their inbox. You want to make sure that those things are happening on a regular enough basis that they're like, Oh yeah, that's Arlen and his company that can help me with the problem that we are about to have again, because we did it, you know, that way on the, on the, on the, on the previous project. Yeah. And also I, I bet you do this, but you know, like make a constant effort to reach out to your previous clients they are vastly easier to sell to, you know, that, that repeat business is huge. So when you think about that revenue mix, you want to de-risk it. So I've got a certain amount of my revenue coming from channel partners. I've got a certain from uh, maybe resellers is a good thing. You know, I've got a certain amount from existing clients and then I need my new and my inbound. So where's that come from? You know, that's going to come from content. It's going from networking, speaking at things, you know, all that stuff. So it, it's got to be that constant mix, which of course leads you to the question of how do you ever do your job? Because that takes a lot of time to do all those things. Uh, I, I find a lot of solo, not solo practitioners, small company practitioners, you know, really don't understand that you, you might get to bill and deliver for a client 40% of the time if you're lucky. And the rest is going to go to business development. And do you even like that? Because if you're somebody that really likes billing 40 hours a week and just doing engineering, you're in for a rude awakening when you have to spend 60% of your time doing sales and, and marketing work. Well, and that, and that was you know the transition for our company over the last couple of years. You know, I, I mentioned that we started this with, with, with a business partner. Um, you know, he came to the realization that that wasn't for him, right? You know, that he, I mean, he literally told me, you know, I, he goes, I just want to do the simulation work all day. That would, that would be the best for me. And, and I said, you know, you know what, that sounds great. I would love to, for that to be the case, but as it sits early in our business, that's not really a possibility for us. We, you know, we both have to be involved in, in this and, you know, and, and so eventually it, it, it came to the point where, um, I bought him out and and continued to grow the company through other channels in terms of, of of key hires and things like that. And our key hires are, you know, the first two were not other simulation people. You know, one was on the project management side to make sure that I don't forget anything, and the other one was on the operations side because we have to be able to standardize a lot of this if we're going to be bringing other people in. And it's not until I mean now we're we're getting to the point where we're starting to hire other simulation people in to expand that capacity. But the first couple of hires were not, were not those kinds of people. Yeah, just great. This is like a masterclass, y'all. You need to listen to this episode again, because that is exactly right. Do not hire a pile of practitioners, because guess who gets to go sell? It's going to be you. <laughs> now, I turned out that I that was the situation I was in, and I actually liked it, and I became you know interested in doing that. But uh, when you got, I mean, I, I did a company with eight different practitioners and we thought, this is great. Oh, wait, somebody needs to go sell something. <laughs> you know? yes. And um, yeah, I mean, that happens a lot. And uh, the, the old, you know, the, we just kind of spin up a website. People are start calling us because we're so great. You know? <laughs> and right. that, that's not a thing. 
<laughs> so it doesn't it does not work out that way. No. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, so what's on the horizon then? You grow in, uh, things are looking good. You know, you're gonna start getting those uh ten percent of uh, total savings, one point five million dollar contracts just falling in your lap. Uh what's yeah. next? So the 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 biggest thing for us right now is to expand capacity because you know one of the things with the pandemic has been that a lot of other routes for companies to develop devices got put on hold during that whole time. So clinical trials were canceled, engineers were working from home, nobody was building prototypes to test in a lab because they weren't in the lab. Um, you know, and and so you know even though all of these were you know critical businesses. A lot of the, that traditional route started to, to slow down. And some of these companies that had been hesitant to work with us in the past, that they just weren't sure that, that we were, you know, because there is some risk that trying something new, right? Um, you know, so, so they, weren't, they weren't sure that they would rather work with us versus do things the way that they'd always done them, you know, because they were more comfortable with that. But the, but the pandemic certainly um, shook that around a little bit and, and brought a few more companies around to the idea of let's give it a shot because, that's the options we have versus just kind of waiting for this to, to blow over. And so that really increased demand on, on what we do. So we're expanding um, that capability to, to keep up with that demand. Because once they work with us and, 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 and apply this type of methodology to their development, it doesn't go away. Like you said, with repeat customers, we have an insane repeat customer rate because, because they see the value of it. They see that we can do what we said we can do. Um, you know, and there is some disbelief in the beginning. Like you said, I can't believe that this is even possible. You know, um, you know, our chief operating officer, when when he was hired, he said, if you had asked me four months ago, I would have told you that this wasn't possible. Right. Uh, you know, and so a lot of what we need to be doing is getting out there and educating the, the companies and the people that this is just it, it's even an option. Right. Like, you know, whether or not it's ideal for you or not, you know, just know that it's out there because it's a lot different than it was 10 years ago. And, you know, 20 years ago or, or 25 years ago is when a lot of these companies were first looking at using computer modeling. And so much has changed in 25 years, whether it's, you know, computational power or, or the tools that are available to use or the types of knowledge that we have around, around how this interacts with biology. All of these things are better than they were, um, you know, even five years ago. I would say that, you know, we, we've moved the needle um, an appreciative amount since then. Back to your question about where we're going is building that 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 capacity to meet that demand so that we can kind of expand not only our company and what we do but also help other companies to to adopt it themselves because one I feel like there's more work than we will ever be able to do as a company I you know I don't feel like you know we're threatened at all by other people coming in and joining us on this journey um, and I do think it's going to fundamentally change the way that medical devices are made going into the future. You know, I, I, I point to aerospace and automotive as places where simulation has taken the place of physical tests for most of their development. And, and now their physical tests are really limited to just verification rather than, ra rather than something that's, that's developed over and over again. And I think medical devices are headed in that direction. And if we can be a part of changing that overall landscape, we're going to have a major impact on patient safety, on what devices are available to smaller patient populations that maybe would have been um, overlooked because uh, it wasn't financially feasible to build devices for them, or the devices will become more effective. They'll have fewer side effects. You'll have better control of how that energy is delivered, you know, and this will spill over into 
areas that we don't even work in because other people will take those ideas and run with them in those spaces. And, and it'll change an industry. And I, and I firmly believe that that's the direction we're headed. And we get to be on the front end of that. And that's and it's super exciting. You know, and after we got over that hump of can we pay our house payment and, you know, that we, you know, actually can make that kind of money. And then we realized that, you know, just changing the financial goals to make it bigger wasn't as satisfying as it sounds. Because it turns out if you just work harder, you make more money, which is which is great to a point until, you know, you're putting in 90 hour weeks week after week. But we really had to change what, what, what it was that we were trying to do, which is now, you know, we, we want to change the industry. Um, we're going to educate everybody to do it that we possibly can. Yeah. And 20 years from now, you know, everybody will be doing it this way and it'll seem so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll all say they listen to this podcast. So thank you so right. much. Well, you know, if, 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 if this helps move the needle, that's great. Right. Um, <laughs> awesome. I think, uh, I think this is uh, a huge opportunity in, in an area that, you know, anybody that's ever paid attention to the healthcare industry knows it's, it needs to be disrupted in many different ways. And this is, this is one of them. So. Great. Great. Well, where can people uh, find you? I'm, you know, I'm sure founders that are in the medical device space, maybe are, are real interested now. So uh, best way to sure. get in touch. Uh, best way is probably through our website, which is uh, SIE simulation.com. Um, and if you want to reach out to me, it's just Arlen Ward on Twitter. So you can, that's probably the, the more, most active of any social media um, out there. So, um, yeah, I think those, those are probably the two, the two best ways. But, uh, you know, to find out about what we do and, and, and all of that, it certainly starts with the website. So. Great. Well, thanks, Arlen, man. This was really, really instructive. I love the lessons. Uh, you said it better than I could. So thanks for coming out. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully, you know, it helps somebody out there for sure. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.